Whew. Well, I, uh, I floated to Mexico and back this week. What'd you guys do? Anything fun? <clears throat> My wife took me on a, on that cruise, that little, like, four day, Catalina Island, Ensenada one, which was great. The best part of it for me was in Ensenada, we got off the boat and, and got to visit uh, Jim and Annie Culp, the missionaries that we support there, and spent the whole day visiting uh, them. Uh, so that, that was cool. Very, very fun. And I had originally scheduled my buddy Clint Letterman uh, to, to preach today, That's, which is probably why most of you are here, because you were expecting uh, Clint to be here. But uh, he's kind of going through this process where God is calling him out of youth ministry into uh, a senior pastor role. And so there's some like transitional things happening at his church that, that are happening today. So uh, the last minute he couldn't make it, which is a bummer, but I'm going to get him here again soon. Uh, open up your Bible. Bibles. I'm kind of glad because this is a really cool passage. I'm glad I get to preach it today. Uh, open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts. We're in chapter 17 this morning. How many of you have that, that, that person or maybe multiple people in your life that just they just uh, like to argue? They just not not even in a in a mean way. Just in, like, they enjoy, like, a healthy, spirited debate sometimes. They like to wrestle through s- subjects and issues, and they like to, to have a, a hearty discussion. And, uh, usually those people are, are, like, well-read and very opinionated. And, uh, anybody have those? Anybody married to a person like that? It's super fun, isn't it? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, th- there's an art to effective debating, to like good, healthy debate. You, you state your case, and then you offer some support for your claim, and then you listen to the other side as they share their case and their support, uh, and then you offer a, a, a reasoned and uh, like healthy rebuttal, and you, and you have a dialogue, and there's a discussion that happens there. It seems like, though, the, the way most arguing happens now skips all of that, and it's more of a, like, state the case, and if you don't agree, then you're a brain-dead moron who eats dirt and probably kicks puppies, right? That's... That's how arguing happens now. It's just straight to personal attack, uh, which is n- not cool. Not a, not a super effective method for debating. Uh, th- then there's this other thing where, where people don't really debate. They just know that there's all of these people out there that, that love to be angry about everything. And so there's certain people who just go around like poking those people, trying to trigger them. Uh, these people are called trolls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or they, they post just inflammatory things on the internet to try and like get people to be angry about stuff just because they think it's funny. Uh, uh, and you know who you are if you're a troll. Uh, I have a, I have a friend, uh, who, I think that's the only reason he uses Facebook at this point is just to like see if he can get people stirred up about things. Let, let me read a few of the Facebook posts from my, my friend. Uh, <clears throat> He writes, uh, we got gender neutral bathrooms. Now can we make it mandatory to have changing tables in both? Hashtag parents' lives matter. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, now he writes, uh, I heart teriyaki is the best place in town. Change my mind. Why would you write that? That's not true. Like you're just looking for a fight. My favorite, uh, I'm pro GMO. Who doesn't want huge, delicious vegetables? Ah, uh, all right. Stop trying to. He's got a few others that are a little bit more political that have, 
that have really uh, angered people, which is, again, it's, it's fun to watch. Uh, social media is not the best venue for debate or for, or for arguing or for discussing anything. It's just not a good venue for any kind of intellectual discussion at all. Uh, it's a great place to post pictures of, of your kids and your food, right? That's about it. That's about it, the extent of what it's useful for. Uh, and one of the main reasons why social media is just not a great place to, to argue or debate is because one of the keys to effective arguing is knowing your audience, understanding where they're coming from, uh, and being able to, to communicate in a, and respond in a way that takes that into consideration. Uh, on social media, the audience is everybody in the world. Uh, it's, it's hard to really have a, a tactful, appropriate conversation with everybody in the world all at the same time, uh, or, or at least everybody you went to high school. It's, it's hard to hit that wide of an audience. Uh, also, when we're hiding behind our computers or, or our phone, it's easy for us to be maybe a little bit more uh, aggressive uh, than we really would be in, in person or in a face-to-face situation. Uh, it's just, just not, not a great place for a healthy argument. Uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, was one of the best arguers. I think he was, he was a, a master at, at this. And he's a trained Pharisee. And so that's basically what they learn how to do is, is how to sit around and debate the finer points of theology all day long. Uh, and as it's Christians, that word that we use for, for arguing, the, the Christian-y word that we use is apologetics, right? Which is just a Greek word that's, we use to talk about offering a defense or, or arguing. Uh, the dictionary definition of apologetics is a systematic, argumentative discourse. And it's, it's from a word that shows up in 1 Peter 3.15. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, there's that apologetic word, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so, like, like we've already seen, Paul's method of doing that is to first go to the synagogue, which is the place that people went to, to worship and to, and to talk, to debate, to argue about theology. And so, and when Paul would go to the synagogue, he would reason from the Old Testament, argue from the Old Testament. This is why it's talking about Jesus. Here in the Old Testament, we see Jesus. We see it all pointing to him. He would use that method to try and convince these Jewish people that, that Jesus is the Messiah that God had been promising all along. Here in Acts 17, Paul has the opportunity to speak to, to these like highly philosophical, very secular, uh, Gentile Athenians. Now, is, is he going to use that same method of going to the Old Testament and arguing? No, no he's, they, they don't know the Old, they don't believe the Old Testament. They, they're not, they're not going to respond in the same way. And so Paul shifts and uses a different method of arguing. And, and his apologetic method seen here really teaches us something about the different ways that we argue our case for Christ. Uh, Let's look at it. Turn to Acts chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 16. 
And just, just a little bit of a backstory uh, to, to this. Uh, this is right in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he and, and Silas and Timothy were just at Berea. And w- like he normally did, he stirs up trouble there and the Jews get a mob and, and they're gonna, they're gonna try and stone him again like they've, they've tried before. And so Paul's friends quickly escort him down to Athens just to keep him safe. Say, okay, you wait here. Silas and Timothy, they're gonna come. Just wait for them. Don't, don't cause trouble, Paul. All right. Just be cool, man. Right. Like that's gonna work. Okay, Acts uh, seventeen sixteen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Oh, no, Paul's provoked. That's not going to be good, right? Uh, th- this passage is cool, though, because it, it teaches us uh, about w- what was going on inside Paul's heart, what his motivation for arguing was says that Paul wandered around Athens and saw all of these thousands of statues of false gods and idols. Some commentaries say there were more idols in Athens than there were people. And, and as he sees this, his spirit is, is stirred up, is provoked within him. He's troubled. He's distressed. That, that, that concept of a spirit being stirred up is a, is a, it's like a complicated concept that it, explains like these complicated emotions that were going on inside of him all at the same time. I'm sure Paul felt anger, right? He was angry at all of these fake gods that people were worshiping that was taking the attention away from the real God. He felt sorrow. I'm sure he was grieved when he thought about how lost and confused these people were. I'm sure that he had compassion on them. That realized that, that they were in desperate need of the truth. And, and, he, and he, he understood that they were, they were headed in the wrong direction and they were lost and he, and he didn't want to see them spend an eternity apart from God. So he had all these different, like, anger and sorrow and compassion and love all, like, colliding together. Have you ever f- felt that way before? We have all these different emotions mixing together and you're not sure which one of them you're supposed to act on have you ever been in a place where you're just so aware of like the spiritual oppression that's there that you just feel heavy and grieved and sad and scared all at the same time ever ever been in a place where you just like you can't explain it but something in your spirit just aches the, the tricky thing is being able to sort out our feelings and then respond to them in appropriate ways. But let's, let's keep reading. Uh, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, uh, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. If you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul starts in his usual place in the synagogue, expands out from there to the marketplace, says there that he's reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in those two places. Again, probably using the Old Testament Word of God to show them that it was teaching about Jesus. The, the Greek word that's used here for reason is the word dialogue. He was dialoguing with them. He was having a discussion with them, a civil debate with them. He talked, and then they talked, and then he talked some more in, in, a, in a civil way. And it must have been somewhere in that marketplace that Paul attracts the attention of these uh, philosophers, of these Greek intellectuals. It says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers took notice of Paul and started to, to interact with him. And at this point, things get kind of interesting. Like here, uh, the, the, these two groups that are mentioned are, are really very different in, in what they believe. The first one is the Epicureans and the, and the pithy little statement that's, that's often used to describe Epicurean philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Just have as much fun as you can because when we die, you're dead. There's nothing else. You're toast. There's, you just you just cease to exist. So let's enjoy as much pleasure as we can right now because when we die, it's all over. They, they believed in gods, but they believed that those gods were super distant, super separated, a totally different thing. Uh, didn't almost more of an of an, an agnostic type belief. Second group mentioned is the Stoics. And these guys are at a, a different end of the spectrum. They're, they're serious and uh, unfeeling, apathetic, Sp- Spock-like, right? Uh, kind of fatalistic. S- stuff is going to happen. And we really don't have that much control over the stuff that's going to happen. So it doesn't make any sense for us to be emotional about it. Why be happy or sad or whatever? Like, that just, it's not logical. Just, just take things as they come. Why, why react? These guys were pantheists, so they believed that God was everything and in everything and a part of everything, and that when you die, you somehow become a part of, of all that. You're like absorbed into it. And both of these groups are like the height of, of intellectualism in Athens and in this city that prided itself on long tradition of, of philosophical wisdom seeking. And honestly, I... I think that without a knowledge of God, without a belief in God, an understanding of, of God like the real God, these two lifestyles make sense, right? Like if you're just going to be nothing when you die, then you might as well have as much fun as you can while you're here if this is all we got. Or you might as well just, I don't know, go through life straight-faced if it's all just determined anyway. These guys are curious, though, about about what Paul is talking about. And so they invite him to come and, and to, to speak at the uh, Areopagus, which is, which is also known as the Council of Ares, also known as Mars Hill. And it was like a, a court, but not, not that like judicial. It was more like a hearing before Congress, only more philosophical and theological. It was a place where they could ask questions and, and, and try, try and learn more. I love the 
the little snide comment that Luke interjects in verse 21. Did you catch that? Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time uh, in, in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That's all they cared about all day long was hearing about new ideas, new concepts, new thoughts. New And Paul was a novelty, which is why they were interested in him. Here was a guy that had something new to say, something that they, they hadn't heard before. So he gets invited in. Now again, is Paul going to use the same apologetic method of opening up the Old Testament and reasoning from that? No, no, it's, there's no way. It's, it's not going to be effective here. And part of what makes Paul's address here at Mars Hill so amazing is how thoughtful he is in taking into consideration his audience and connecting with them in ways that, that he knows they're going to better understand. Let's look at what he, he has to say. Look at verse uh, 22. <clears throat> so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and, and said, Men of Athens, I observed that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to, to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's apologetic method here, it starts off with a compliment, right? I can see that you guys are super religious. So, you got that going for you. I mean, that's a, clearly you guys care a lot about gods because you have so many of them. I'm walking around and I'm seeing all these gods. Religion must really matter to you. He doesn't start off by calling them Nazis or by calling them ugly or by calling them idiots. He, he starts by saying something positive about them. Why? Why do that? Why, why take the time to, to even do that? I'm sure Paul was anxious to just like get in there and, and blast them with the truth. Why not just skip to the good stuff? The reason? 
because it's gracious. Because, because it's, it's loving and it's caring and it's polite. And because Paul wants them to listen to him. Not just immediately be angry at him and dismiss him or be defensive and, and opposed to hearing anything he has to say from them. From that on, like he, he knows just jumping right in with your own ideas and your own thoughts and your own beliefs is, is not necessarily the best approach. Maybe, maybe remember that the next time we're like typing that thing into Facebook, right? Is this, is this gracious? Is this the best approach? Is this even going to be heard or is this just going to make me look like a, a crazy fanatic? Uh-huh. Next thing that Paul does here is he finds common ground to build off of. Find something that they all have in common. I was walking around your city, looking at all the statues that you have, and I found one statue that w- was built to an unknown God. The inscription on it was, to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that God. Let me share with you who that guy is. You don't know who he is. You're ignorant about who that is. You built this just in case you missed one. You did. You missed one. And and I want you to know more about who he is and what he's like. He's not unknown to everybody. He wants you to know him. So, so Paul, again, starts off with, with that common ground and then explains to them who this guy's God who created everything, who made us and, and, and sustains us and we exist in him. That's, that's who that God is. That's what that God is like. How do we do that? How do we find common ground with people that what we're debating with, discussing theology with? How, how does that work for us? I think first, we have to know something about the person that we're talking to. Paul here did homework, right? He spent some time reading the inscriptions on the statues and learning more about them. He had read their poets because he quotes them back to them. And I think at least to some extent, we need to do a little bit of homework ourselves. We need to ask people some simple questions. Maybe that's all it is. is what, what do you believe about God? And what, what, what did you grow up uh, in, in? What kind of church tradition did you grow up in? Or what, what was that like for your family? What is that like for you now? What are your thoughts on eternity and the afterlife? Asking questions and, and then listening to what their response is, like really listening to where they're at and what they're thinking and where they're coming from. Trying to find common ground means really getting to know somebody. And I I think that's got to be a key part of any healthy, productive dialogue. Because if if all we're going to do is just scream our ideas into the air like like a crazy person on a street corner, then you can skip this step. Like you can skip it and... But if we really want to help people and, and to be able to have a conversation and a dialogue, then we have to love them enough to, to know them better. Oh, man. This is frustrating so far. When do we get to the part where we start screaming at people and shaking them? That's coming, right? Paul's getting there, right? Uh, soon. Uh, maybe not. Next thing Paul does is he just describes for them what God is like simply explains here who he is. 
In, in clear, straightforward language, he describes God. God is the creator of all things. He made everything in heaven and on earth. God is the sustainer of all things. He's intimately involved with us. He's not like somewhere out there aloof, uninterested in what we're doing. God doesn't live in a temple like a person. God doesn't depend on us. He doesn't, doesn't need us. God created man, not the other way around. All the nations came from him. All of it started from one man. He talks about that. It started with one man, Adam, and then went from there. The boundaries of earth and heaven have been set by him. And he desires for us to seek him. God wants us to look for him and to have a relationship with him. He's he's not far away. That's not a bad starting place. A starting place of of belief in God is 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 a good foundation because most people believe in God, like even, even if they don't know him or understand him or aren't sure about Christianity, I, I don't, I think most people would say, yeah, there's probably some sort of creator God that's out there somewhere. I just, I just don't know what he's like. It's, it's hard to believe that this whole world came into being just by accident. And it's, it's not all that scientific to believe that everything came from nothing. That, that doesn't line up. And all the, like the delicate balance of life and all the information that's encoded in our DNA and all the beauty and specific design that we see seems to argue for an intelligent designer. And if there's a God who created all this, who made all this, then it's reasonable to assume that that God has communicated to us somehow. He's, he's made himself known. That that God has, has desired to interact with his creation. Why would you make something awesome, like as awesome as we are, right? And not want to interact at all, not want to have some kind of relationship. There's, there's a reason why God created us. And if, if God has interacted with his creation, then how? How has he done that? What has he had to say? How could we as finite creatures really know him at all anyway? Whether we can't unless, unless he condescends, comes down to make himself known to us. That's, and that's where the word of God comes in. That he has spoken through prophets and through his word, through Jesus. If that's the case, let's, let's find out what he's, what he's got to say to us. The next thing that Paul does from here is he explains to them what the core problem is, what the essential conflict is that humanity faces. Now here's how he states it to these, to these Greek intellectuals. He says, for in him we live and move and exist, as even uh, some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He, he quotes their own poets. That's a nice touch, right? That's a good move, Paul. And here's the point that he's making. He's saying what I'm saying, and even what you guys believe, like even what you Athenians, your poets believe, is that we are God's children. And if that's the case, God's the one that made us. 
We didn't make him. So these idols that we've created are crazy. They're foolish. If that's true, that we're God's creation, we're God's children, then, then these idols don't make any sense. He doesn't use the word idol anywhere in here, right? But, but clearly that's what he's talking about. Not recognizing or honoring or worshiping God who made us in a way that's honoring to him, but instead trying to like drag him down to our level and be the ones to recreate him in our image. He goes on to then offer the solution. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, who's he talking about there? Jesus, right? Uh, Whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You guys were ignorant of who God was before, and okay, that's why you, that's why you had a statue to an unknown God. But now you know who the real God is. And, and that real God wants everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from idolatry and sin and selfishness and in faith follow him. Paul says, this is a time of judgment coming. We aren't going to just blink out of existence like the Epicureans think. We aren't going to just be absorbed into everything like the Stoics think. There's coming a time of judgment and punishment from God. and Those who reject and dishonor Him are going to spend an eternity in, in judgment. But those who have faith in Him, they have this hope of resurrection and new life. He says that the righteous judge is a, is a man, Jesus Christ, and the proof was God raising him from the dead. If you don't believe what I'm saying, the proof that God really has done what he said he's done, that the Bible really is true, that this really is the real God, is that a resurrection has occurred. This, this is how we argue. This is how we address people who have different beliefs and ideas than we do. But does this look like our arguing? Sometimes no, right? This is how we're supposed to do it, though, with patience and with grace and with empathy. Notice that there are, there are no personal attacks anywhere here. No, no angry rants or insults. Because Paul genuinely loves these confused, lost people. Prideful people. He doesn't, doesn't condescend or, or spew hate towards these people who are lost. He shows them respect and love. How will you respond to people who, who are lost? How will people respond to you If, if all you are is just angry and venomous, fanatical and foolish, they'll ignore you. That's how. They'll write you off. They'll be offended and hate you and whatever God you want to talk about. It will be nothing more than a noisy symbol, just worthless. How did they respond to Paul, though, in, in his approach here? 
verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and uh, the uh, Aropagate, a woman named uh, Damaris, and others with them. So three responses there, right? Some mocked him, sneered at him. It rejected Paul as soon as he mentioned resurrection because they already didn't believe in resurrection. And so you want to talk about that at all? And we're just going to completely shut that down. We're so set in our ways that we're not at all able to hear anything different. There's no resurrection. There can't be resurrection. At least I hope there's no resurrection because the way I've lived my life, I'm in trouble if there is. And, and I don't really want to stop living my life the way I've been living it. So no, I don't believe you. I reject you. Have you met those kinds of people? Probably. <laughs> what you're saying might be true. I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to do anything different than what I'm doing right now. Others just delayed him. They just put him off. Wow, that sounds interesting, Paul. Can't wait to hear more about it. Let's talk about it more later. I think this is a pretty common one, too. This is the one I get a lot. Yeah, I believe like in God-ish, kind of, that that's probably a thing. And someday, I want to like learn more. I want to understand that whole thing more. I, I plan on figuring it out later. I'm not going to believe or reject. I'm just, just going to kind of hang out here on the fence, and maybe at some point I'll have a chance to decide you know, what I think or what, what I believe. I, I, think it was, I think it was Jack Hamlin who used to tell a story about, about fence sitters, and, the, and at the end he would reveal that Satan owns the fence, so don't, don't hang out there. Uh, they, they never did get to hear Paul talk about this more later. I mean, Paul left Athens right after that, uh, n- never came back. It doesn't seem like they got a second chance. Hopefully, the believers who did respond were, were able to share with them. Or the last group believed him and joined him. And ultimately, I don't think it was Paul's persu- persuasive speech that caused them to believe. I, I think it's the working of the Holy Spirit stirring in their hearts that caused them to believe. And Paul's he's just doing what he's supposed to do. He's just planting seeds and watering and God's the one that's making things grow. But, but there's still some wisdom to, to planting seeds like gently in the soil, right? And not just like throwing handfuls of seed at people's face, right? There's a, there's a way we can do that, I think, that's smarter. We can be wise and winsome with how we plead our case for Christ. Let me close with this verse from First Peter that I read earlier. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. God, I pray that you would give us the ability to do just that. Or to be ready, be ready to, to give an account, to share with people uh, why there's such like, hope and optimism and joy that just pours out of us. And give us opportunities to be able to share with people this hope of heaven and this hope of eternity 
This hope of resurrection that we have through Jesus Christ. When those opportunities arise, I pray to your God that you would help us to do it with gentleness, with reverence, in a way that's loving and gracious and caring and understanding. Lord, thank You for those people that You brought into our lives that shared the Gospel in a way that was gracious and gentle. Thank You, Lord, for helping us to be able to see the truth of the Gospel. Again, God, we thank You so much for how much grace You pour out on us. Help us, Lord, to be loving and compassionate with those who who need you. Help us to see them the way that you see them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.